trusted voice of truth and light. God gave me a gift. I shovel well. I shovel very well. And a rally point for those who've accepted the reality that they are not sheep. We've got a blind date with destiny. And it looks like she's ordered the lobster. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, welcome to the show. So glad you could join us today. I'm happy to welcome Eric Peters from epautos.com. We've got some great stuff to discuss today. So let's dive right in. Hey, Eric, welcome to the show. Glad to have great you on board once again. Great to be back, Brian. I'm assuming that you're not afflicted by the holy fog. I, you know, I only understand this because I read your recent article on uh, <laughs> on distracted drivers. And this this is probably a good place to start. I've been doing a lot more driving than usual the last few weeks with moving and traveling. And uh, d- Anyway, yeah, let's let's bring our listeners up to speed. When you talk about the holy fog, what is going on there? Well, it's the state of being kind of just confused and not able to focus that apparently a lot of people are experiencing after receiving their holy anointing. Uh, I have been noticing more of this over the course of roughly the last three weeks or four weeks or so, which is coincident to the mass needling, the mass anointing of the populace. We've always had people who drove slightly slow, slightly below the posted speed limit, right at the speed limit. Uh, And, of course, that was kind of tedious, and you waited for an opportunity to get around those people. But lately, it seems that as soon as you leave your driveway, you're you're stuck behind somebody who's going 15, even 20 miles an hour below the speed limit. I've posted a number of videos about this. It seems to be everywhere. At first, I thought it was just in my area for one reason or another. But when I posted my article, I received a lot of replies from people all over the country who said they're seeing the same thing. Now, I know correlation is not necessarily causation, but I do think it's interesting that we're seeing an epidemic of really slow driving all of a sudden. That is true. And, and you know, I look, I'm, I don't claim to be the world's uh, best driver, but I do like to pride myself on, I pay attention to what's going on around me. I'm, I'm aware, and I feel like that's the least I can do for, for my fellow citizens out there on the highways. But I, I get frustrated when I see people who are just, I don't know, they're in, they are in a haze. They're not mm-hmm. really aware. They're just kind of behind the wheel. And then, oh, oh, I mm-hmm. guess there's something I should pay attention to. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it's not just the slow driving. It's erratic driving, uh, which is, of course, unsafe driving. You These people who will drift across the center line into the opposing lane of traffic or they'll, they'll brake at random for no reason. Uh, and then they'll accelerate again for no apparent reason. And, you know, almost as if they're asleep and somebody poked them in the rib and said, hey, pay attention. It's very weird. Yeah, it's um, we were we were very fortunate a few years ago. Uh, my wife was involved in a crash that uh, that was unfortunately entirely preventable. And it was one of those instances where she was driving down the interstate, you know, 75, 80 miles an hour and failed to recognize that uh, a vehicle towing a trailer in front of her was going really slow, like maybe mm-hmm. 40 miles an hour. And, mm-hmm. and because she wasn't focused, you know, ahead of her and, and seeing what was approaching, by the time she got up on it, she overreacted, overcorrected, mm-hmm. and went into the guardrail, spun out. Mm-hmm. Our car caught fire from the airbags. Oh, my God. She was, she was uninjured except for a couple small burns on her wrists. But, I mean, the car was totaled. And, yeah. And she got a ticket, you know, for, for failure to, to see what was coming. 
Yeah, you know, you and I talked a little bit before the program went live about the the roots of this, and I've taken a number of high performance driving courses in my time, and one of the the, the things that they teach you initially before you even go out on the track is to look where you're headed, not where you are. And um, unfortunately, that isn't being taught to people any longer. And so they fixate on what's immediately in front of them. They don't look down the road. They don't anticipate the need to get out of the way of something. You know, for example, a car entering traffic or pulling out from a side road or something of that nature. So when it does pull out in front of them, they're not prepared for it, and then they're startled by it. And, of course, it takes a split-second judgment to do something. And often that split-second judgment is an incorrect one, and it's an overcorrecting one with results such as the one that your wife experienced. Okay, so I'm going to ask you a loaded question, Eric, knowing mm-hmm. full well that you are one of the most dedicated proponents of freedom that I know. Mm-hmm. But I've got to ask you, should it be harder to get a driver's license? I mean, like akin to what mm-hmm. Germany requires of, of its citizens before they are issued a driver's license? Yeah, you know, this is a very interesting topic. I wrote about this a couple of weeks ago. Now, in principle, I don't like the idea of having gov- having, having to get government permission in order to use the public thoroughfare. But let's set that aside for a moment and talk about driver's licenses, which they aren't. You know, they're essentially IDs. IDs. They have absolutely nothing to do with, with um, being a measure of your competence to operate a motor vehicle. I think if we're going to have driver's licenses, let's make them actually about competence and having to reach a certain minimum threshold of ability before you're entrusted with uh, going out there with a 3,000-pound car uh, and driving. It's quite ironic. In, in many states that have concealed carry permits, you have to take a course. Some of these are actually live-fire courses where you have to show that you're capable of competently handling a gun before you're allowed to handle a gun. And, of course, we have all of this uh, stuff going on with uh, sickness kabuki, you know, because we have to do this in order to keep everybody safe. But we let literally anybody who can push a button to start the engine and then push another button to put it into gear take a vehicle out on the road when they may not be competent to do that safely. See, like you, I I don't like the idea of going to the state with my hat in my hand and begging, please, may I drive? Mm-hmm. Um, that That's, you know, really distasteful to me. But... I can't argue the fact that when I was driving in Germany, um, the Autobahn was actually one of the most pleasant places I've ever driven just because there was competence. Every driver I encountered had competence. That's because it's very difficult, as you know, to get a driver's license in Germany, at least relative to here. You have to take extensive training, and then there's extensive on-road testing before you get that license, whereas here, literally any warm body that can get, what is it, 20 out of 30 questions about traffic laws uh, right at the, at the kiosk at the DMV is given a, and I put it in air finger quotes to emphasize the ir- irony of it, a driver's license. Yeah. Well, I appreciate you weighing in on this, and, and I'm just going to tell you, I'm jealous that uh, you've had these performance driving courses. I, I don't know that they're for everybody, but a guy can dream, Right. Well, yeah, and I will say this, too, to people who have uh, teenagers who are getting ready to, to, to drive on their own. Even though these courses can be pretty pricey, you know, two, $3,000 in some cases, they're worth it. If you think about uh, the, the skill and the ability that it imparts and the respect for vehicle dynamics and how much is your kid's life worth to you, if your kid acquires the skill and the competence to avoid an accident, I think that's money well spent. No, I, I would definitely agree. Since we're talking automotive stuff in this segment, uh, let me just ask you this. Um, I know you get to test drive cars. You get Mm -hmm. to write reviews about them. 
you uh, you have mentioned to me that you're, you're seeing a lot of crossover SUVs. <laughs> is that is that just the thing, or is that that uh, uh, is that a commentary on our society and what we're becoming? Well, kind of, yeah. I, I refer to them tongue in cheek as the UTM or the Universal Trans or UTA U- Universal Transportation Appliance. Uh, they're everywhere. They're replacing sedans. Sedans are going away. Mazda, for example, is the most recent to announce that they're canceling their six sedan. And in favor of that, just building crossovers. I don't think GM makes any cars anymore other than the Camaro and the Corvette. Uh, same with Ford. I don't think Ford makes any cars anymore other than the Mustang. The rest of them are all crossovers. And part of it has to do uh, with all these government regulations that effectively you know, winnow things down and dictate vehicle design. And also, which have eliminated a lot of kinds of cars, like the big sedans that we used to drive when we were younger and that our parents drove. And so now you have these smaller cars that aren't really very practical for a family. So, you know, people get into these crossovers, which have the merit of being practical and roomy for their size. But they're so homogenous. They're all the same. Do you remember the original Godfather where Sonny gets mowed down and, uh, and, and then uh, the Godfather goes to see the mortician and he says, I want you to use all your skill and your talents you know, to make him look good for the funeral. <laughs> yeah. I feel like that when I'm writing about these crossover SUVs, because, you know, every, every week I'm, coming up, I'm having to come up with 2,000 words uh, of something to say about these things. And since they're so similar, sometimes it's very hard. Well, this one has a 12.3-inch LCD touchscreen, and that one has an 11.2-inch LCD touchscreen. Ooh, wow. <laughs> <laughs> I see. I see your dilemma, and and by the way, I I was just reading the other day. I thought I'd get your comment on this. Is it true Ford is going to be making more electric Mustangs than gas-powered Mustangs as they go forward? Well, you know the interesting thing about that, and I actually, I'm glad you mentioned it. I I need to write something about that. Yeah, the media was touting that uh, Ford will produce more of its Mach E electric crossover SUV than Mustangs, but there's a difference between producing things and selling them. Gotcha. So I, I don't doubt that Ford is going to make a lot of these things. Now, whether people are going to buy them is another question, and it's not really a fair comparison anyway because a Mustang is a two-door specialty car. It's not a family car. It's not a practical car. It's a car that people buy because it's fun and they, you know, it, it's enjoyable and they like the way it looks. It would be much more fair to compare the, the production and sales figures of the Mach-E, which is a five-door crossover SUV, happens to be electric, but that's what it is, with a comparably sized crossover SUV, and then we have a better picture of what's really happening. Okay, hold that thought. Again, we're talking with Eric Peters from ericpetersautos.com. Seriously, if you are thinking about any kind of vehicle you're going to make a purchase, you should really go to his website and do some research there. We'll be back just the other side of these messages. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, welcome back to the show. Eric Peters from epautos.com is my guest. Eric, I'm seeing some really encouraging things as I am out and about in society. Number one, I see a lot less masks, and that, mm-hmm. that includes on employees of various businesses. Yep. And I'm I'm feeling encouraged by this. I mean, it's uh, there's there's a strong sense that hey, things are starting to relax. I see this happening in other states across the country. California, of course, the exception. Gavin Newsom's mm-hmm. going to hang on to that uh, state of emergency for a little bit longer. But I have a concern. And my concern is this. 
during the summer months, I mean, last summer, did we not see um, the, the rate of COVID infections drop as mm-hmm. sunlight acted as disinfectant, mm-hmm. so to speak, and then, sure. then come back up when cold and flu season, you know, hit us, you know, starting in, sure. in fall? I'm just curious, what, to, what will the reaction be? Are the lockdowners going to want to lock it down even harder when, when there's another resurgence in, in sickness? You know they will. You know, we, we know the answer to that question before, they, before we even ask it. Of course they will, because they've been absolutely hystericized about sickness, any kind of sickness, and they've been taught to equate this, this, this cases business with actual sickness and even death, whereas we all know that just that you happen to have tested positive on a case uh, for, for, this, for this virus, which may indicate nothing more than you have some remnants of the viral material in your, in your system and you're perfectly healthy and you're certainly not going to die, uh, it's, it's ridiculous to be terrified of that. But that's what they want is to keep everybody perpetually terrified for the sake of perpetual control. Well, let's let's talk about the old mantra, my body, my choice. Mm-hmm. We've, we've heard this in a number of different uh, incarnations and different political causes, but uh, let's talk about it as it pertains to the vaccination, because, boy, the push is mm-hmm. on. We've got to get this many vaccinations by July mm-hmm. 4th, says the president. I yawn and go back to what I was doing. Yeah, I juxtaposed it with the abortion issue, um, because it is mostly people on the hard left who are most belligerently pro-choice, as they put it, uh, and who are also at the same time the most belligerently you will get vaccinated uh, and who want to see things like the vaccine passports, who want to make it so that you won't be able to come back to your job or get a job or go to a concert unless you have proof of jab. Now, I find that interesting because the premise of their argument with regard to abortion, their right to terminate um, their unborn child, is it's my body, and therefore it's my choice. But when you or I say, well, it's my body, and I'd rather not risk terminating myself, somehow it's not really our body anymore. And I just think it points out the hypocrisy, the cognitive dissonance of these people who hold these two mutually exclusive views. Well, yeah, it is interesting how, how situational it becomes. I mean, this is this is part and parcel of all the mass protests taking place a year ago, and yet uh, no one could wag a finger at them and say, well, now they're violating all the protocols of people being separated mm-hmm. and not staying home. I guess, you know, if you, if you have the right political cause behind you, apparently you are impervious to reality. Well, it's not reality. It's, it's simply that they want what they want, and whatever excuse they can come up with, for the moment, to justify it, they'll use. And when that excuse no longer works, they'll come up with another excuse. They're fundamentally very dishonest people, I think, um, because they won't admit that. They won't concede uh, a logical point. You know, if you, if you say, well, I have got a right to an abortion because it's my body, then logically, if you're honest, then you have a right to not have your body violated uh, against your will by the injection of a substance that may cause you harm. And even if it doesn't cause you harm, the principle is the same. It's the difference between consensual sex and rape, right? No, Your body is being good violated. Good example. So I, I, I'd be curious to hear what, uh, what you're hearing from, from people in your circles who have uh, so far successfully resisted the vaccination. What kind of pressure is being brought to bear on them? Well, my circle's a little bit smaller and a little bit different. It's, it's probably composed of people more like yourself and myself uh, who are very much opposed to all of this and have been from the, from the get-go and who have not put on the holy rag and will not 
accept the holy jab. However, um, there's no doubt that the pressure is being brought to bear. I have a number of readers who have posted and then told me privately also these very tragic stories um, about family members, close friends, uh, essentially saying that they won't associate with them any longer uh, unless they receive the holy needle. A very good friend of mine wanted to take his uh, daughter up to see their aunt and uncle, and this aunt and uncle said that they absolutely are not welcome there unless they receive their holy needling, notwithstanding that this aunt and uncle have been needled themselves, and so presumably they're safe, and yet they insist that everybody else get needled too. Interesting. And, and, and I'm seeing also uh, the, the people who persist in wearing masks, you know, while driving alone or, mm-hmm. or doing things that, that really don't put them, you know, in close proximity to anybody, let alone to the sick. It, it's, mm-hmm. it, there, there seems to be a kind of, uh, I don't know, it's, it's like Linus in his blanket. This is the security factor. I just, I just feel better when I put on my mask. Sure. Sure. And the one good thing about the relaxation of the mandates that pressured a lot of people to put the thing on uh, reluctantly, they didn't want to, but they did because they wanted to be able to go shopping or go to work or whatever, is that we're back to where we were uh, around this time last year where you could see the crazies, you know, the the ones that were wearing the the holy rag. You knew right away these people are not quite right in the head. Uh, They're they're mentally ill, just like, you know, you went back two years ago and you saw Michael Jackson and you kind of pitied the guy. So now we can kind of check out and see who the really nutty people are. But the, the thing that concerns me is that a lot of the nutty people are now incognito again. You know, they've gotten their holy jabs, and that hasn't cured them of their fear. And when the fear organ starts to play again this fall, as I suspect that it will, <laughs> they, you know, they're, they're going to point the finger at, uh, at us, at the people who haven't been needled, notwithstanding that we haven't given anybody anything because we haven't got anything. But they're going to blame us for the cases, the cases going up again. And I think that's when the pressure will uh, increase markedly and probably even the laws will change such that they try to uh, cajole and then force those of us who are not interested in being injected to get injected or else. I think anybody who, who doubts you know, what this can lead to or who, who poo-poos the idea that there, there's something wrong with this approach of, well, we just got a mandate and force everybody to do this. Mm-hmm. They really should take a close look at what's been happening in Australia. That, mm-hmm. That's probably the most dystopian example I can point to. And, and it continues. Even though the cases are at, at an all-time mm-hmm. low, um, man, they are still locking them down hard and, and punishing people with state force who dare defy what, uh, you know, the bureaucrats are saying. Yeah, what's particularly alarming to me is it's not China. You know, we're talking about Australia. We're talking about Canada. These are uh, nominally Western uh, countries. And supposedly you'd think uh, a tradition of reasonableness and respect for individual autonomy and proportionality. And they are literally sending body-armored goons with guns to tackle and handcuff and drag away people who are uh, not obeying the lockdown orders or, or going out in public showing their face. And uh, the fact that that has happened indicates where this could go. And it could certainly go that way in this country as well. And I dread it. And, and of course, with, with uh, Fauci's emails coming out and, and we learned that, uh, hey, he wasn't exactly playing straight with the truth. I, I don't know how a person who at least is trying to be objective couldn't come away with the conclusion this was all about control. It always mm-hmm. was about control. Yes, at the very least, and this is giving him an incredible benefit of the doubt, uh, Fauci is grotesquely incompetent, 
how many times has this guy been been way wrong, way off base, and yet he's still given a platform and a megaphone and treated respectfully uh, by the press and by the media. It's outrageous. Uh, I, you know, I just I don't understand it except for the fact that he is a facilitator of this agenda of control. And uh, he's become sort of the pope of sickness psychosis. That's why I call him Pope Fauci the 18th. Well, at the risk of, uh, you know, of alienating some people, any guy who throws a baseball the way Fauci threw a baseball last year yeah. should be suspect. I mean, that should just be right on its face. Eric, Absolutely. thank you so much for spending some time with me and with our listeners. Um, appreciate it. Where can people find your website? Uh, well, they can go to www.epautos.com, and it's the web's best libertarian gearhead site because I think it's the only libertarian gearhead site on the web. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, welcome back to the show. Quick shout out to our sponsors, including MonticelloCollege.org. If you check out yesterday's show notes, that would be uh, June 7th, 2021, you'll find that uh, I did interview Dr. Shannon Brooks from Monticello College. Great conversation with him about the new economy. Also, thanks to HSLAmmo.com and a quick shout out to Pure-Light.com. These are the most amazing light bulbs. If you have ever thought, you know, I should probably drop $1,000 or more on a good quality air purifier to make sure that I'm taking care of the different, uh, you know, different pathogens and chemicals and contaminants in, in the air in my home, even even food odors or pet odors, you know, a good, uh, good air purifier will take care of that. So will a uh, very quality light bulb like the ones made by pure-light.com in fact they do it for a whole lot less and having put this to the test i can tell you they do work they absolutely work as advertised check out the links in the show notes at the show.com and to tell them their advertising message is reaching you i think most of us have heard some variation of how our nation was founded on judeo-christian principles by the way i do believe that that doesn't mean they founded a theocracy, but I do think Judeo-Christian principles definitely informed the thinking and worldview of the founding generation. And thank goodness. But if someone were to ask you, well, uh, why don't you explain what those principles are? Could you do it? I could do a pretty halting shot at it. I'd give it the old college try, but I don't think I could give as clear or concise an explanation as Paul Rosenberg does. He has a terrific explanation of what those Judeo-Christian principles are, but more importantly, why they matter. He says, it's become common to speak of Judeo-Christian principles, but that also begs the question of precisely what those principles are. And not so long ago, he says, I searched for a clear set of them and came up dry. I found statements of religious beliefs, and I found lists of good habits that were spawned by Judeo-Christian principles, but he says, I didn't find the principles themselves. Nonetheless, a consistent set of Judeo-Christian principles held all through the run of Western civilization. And he says they remain even now as our civilization sputters towards either a defiant revival or a whimpering end. 
The principles of Judaism and Christianity empowered what was by far the most productive and moral civilization in recorded history. Yes, he says, with many failures, but with many fewer and smaller failures than any other major civilization. And he says, I think these principles are worthy of our time and, more importantly, are worthy of our action. So, here is a list of Judeo-Christian principles that Paul Rosenberg has compiled. And I love how he starts. The very first one is, our relationship with the Creator is fundamentally personal. Paul Rosenberg says, to both Judaism and Christianity, the creature-creator relationship is fundamentally individual, not collective. Such a relationship means that each of us matters to the Creator. And by extension, the importance of which, w- the importance of which would be hard to overstress. This means that what we do matters. The actions of each person, male, female, young, old, whatever, all of them matter. The actions of our neighbors do not matter more than our own, and certainly not to the Creator. Here's the second principle. We carry free will. We are not slaves to fate, nor are we simply pre-programmed machines. We are free and individual moral agents. Our choices matter. The third principle is we are able to improve. The Bible, the central literary source of of Judeo-Christian development, continually features men and women who had changes of heart, providing examples of positive change most of all. That has taught billions of us that we are able to change positively, and the importance of this can hardly be overstressed. Next, power and rulership are antithetic to the Creator and antithetic to human progress. Now listen to what he's saying here because this is something I think we've forgotten. The Judeo-Christian God cares not for the high, but for the humble. He speaks not to the powerful, but to the powerless. Now, this is seen in the Bible from one end to the other, often explicitly. Now, granted, those who wish it were otherwise can pull out a few contrary passages, but a local creek hardly overpowers the mighty Mississippi. Justice stands above the ruler is the next principle. Over and over, the Judeo-Christian God thunders against kings and leaders. He demands justice, especially for the downtrodden. Next principle, the Creator, the ultimate, is qualitatively good. Now, the rough parts of the Old Testament notwithstanding, and by the way, he has a link to the Discourses book that he's written on this for, for coverage of this. He says, the Creator as good has been the message of Judaism for a very long time and has definitely extended through Christianity. If nothing else, this concept gave powerless people a way to prove their righteousness with God. The influence of their good God was visible in their goodness. It meant that they bore his impress, meaning his impression. Now, this was a terribly productive incentive, even if some number took it to odd places. Let me put it another way, and this is just my own translation of, of what, uh, what I'm understanding from what Paul Rosenberg has written here. <clears throat> My faith in God has often been strengthened by people who have accurately reflected God's love toward me. Does that make sense? To some people it will, maybe to others it won't. But my point is, people who really love their Creator show by the way they treat other people, by the way they conduct themselves. And people who are at odds with their Creator will often show by their actions, by their language. 
that they are at odds, not just with him, but with, with everything and everyone that he's created. Here's another principle. We are obliged to our offspring, not them to us. So not only does the God of the Hebrews rage against children being made to pass through the fire to Moloch, but he frames his warnings in terms of what will happen to your children. Clearly, the needs of the child are shown as superior to the desires of the parents. This is one of the reasons why, when, uh, when you know, for instance, the Catholic Church, among others, stood up against same-sex marriage. It wasn't a matter of, well, we need to punish the gays because marriage was made to keep us happy and nobody else. Instead, what they were standing up for was the idea that marriage is primarily about the relationship in which children are sired and raised. Not just about companionship for any combination of adults. And that's not to mean that, therefore, you know, other adults can't have, you know, happiness. I think God wants us to be happy. But the institution of marriage was primarily about children and providing a stable framework and a stable relationship in which they could be reared to productive adulthood. And I, I mean no slight you know, to, to my friends who are part of the LGBT community. Um, this, this is not a, a put-down in any way. But no matter what same-sex couples do in the privacy of their home or in the privacy of their bedroom, the creation of life, the procreation of human life, still happens as the result of a male-female pairing. And when that takes place in the context of a permanent relationship between a man and a woman committed to one another and committed to whatever offspring they have, that's where you find the greatest stability for their society. And by the way, it's a, it's a, it's a template that is held through all kinds of different civilizations, great and small, primitive and advanced, throughout human history. It's only within recent years that we've decided, hey, we need to reinvent the wheel and, uh, you know, created all kinds of different classifications. Again, I'm not telling you that, you know, you can't be happy. But I am trying to make the case that people who stand up for, for instance, traditional marriage, aren't doing so out of a sense of, uh, you're different, therefore I must punish you. If we're obliged to our offspring and not them to us, that's a pretty serious Judeo-Christian principle. Also, a strong preference for production rather than plunder. From Abraham through the New Testament, Jewish and Christian writings assume they are addressing productive people, not plunderers. Jews and Christians never had anything like, as the Romans did, an altar of victory. So conquering resided in Judaism only in the sense of throwing off oppressors, not to become oppressors. And that certainly is a theme that continues with Christianity. How about this one? The ultimate is an individual. If the ultimate is an individual, if God is one, the holders of such an image become somewhat more willing to think as individuals and to find strength to stand alone. And that's a potent image for people to hold. Now, there are a couple more of these uh, principles, uh, these Judeo-Christian principles. I'm going to come back to them here in just a few moments. But I will have a link to this in the show notes at thebrianhydeshow.com. And if you haven't subscribed to uh, Paul Rosenberg's weekly email through freemansperspective.com, ah, man, you are missing out. This guy has a very solid take on the world around us. More importantly, there's there's a love in his writing that I don't often find in other pundits, you know, the ones that are more 
partisan in their approach. I like how he says what he says. And whether I agree or not, it's always always worth considering. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Hey, welcome back to the show. Again, I'm sharing an article here from Paul Rosenberg. What are the Judeo-Christian principles? I don't know how many of these sounded familiar to you. This just in, in way of uh, review. Let's just walk back through a couple of them. Um, if I were asked to give a list, I don't think I would have included all of these, but these expound on things that I really do hold to be true. Things like our relationship with the Creator is fundamentally personal. We carry free will. We're able to improve. Power and rulership do not impress the Creator. And in fact, they can sometimes be antithetic to human progress. Justice stands above the ruler. The creator is the ultimate, is ultimately, or is qualitatively good. Therefore, we should be good. We are obliged to our offspring, not them to us. A strong preference for production rather than plunder. The ultimate is an individual. I mean, these, to, to me, these, these make sense, you know. But then again, maybe I'm just speaking as a, you know, confident, heterosexual, white uh, male. Sorry, just trying to hit as many of those intersectional hot buttons as possible. Here's another one. And this, this one might cause a few people to go, whoo, wait a minute. Geography has no bearing on our relationship with ultimates, truth, or justice. God doesn't think differently of that person because they live across an imaginary line that separates their country from yours. But I know a lot of people who believe that's the case. I know people who believe that, uh, you know, that's, that's of the utmost importance. And they'll give quotes like, well, you know, there are gates at heaven, but hell has no boundaries. And sorry, but that's, that's partisan malarkey. Geography has no bearing on our relationship with ultimates, meaning God or truth or justice. Paul Rosenberg writes, Judaism broke geography from God, thus separating all the matters of the inner man from kingdoms and from the outer world in general. This was a fundamental concept, and it set human minds free of many restraints. Render unto Caesar what is Caesar's. Render unto God what is God's. If you believe God is the ultimate creator, then that would put him above Caesar. That would mean even, even what Caesar has is God's. But, you know, some people prefer, uh, you know, they prefer deities they can see, especially those uh, wear the equivalent of the suit and tie and act like, yeah, I'm in charge here. Here's the next one. Humanity is in a long-term familial relationship with the Creator. Now, Paul Rosenberg says, regardless of the Bible's warnings and even because of them, the fundamental connection between the ultimate and mankind is a familial relationship. And this is sometimes shown in surprisingly intimate and touching tones, like this passage from the second chapter of Jeremiah. Go and cry in the ears of Jerusalem, saying, Thus saith the Lord, I remember thee, the kindness of thy youth, the love of thine espousals, when you went after me in the wilderness, in a land not sown. Israel was holiness unto the Lord, the first fruits of his increase. All that devour him shall, shall offend. 
I mean, you can poo-poo it if you want. Yeah, it's your imaginary sky friend. But there's some pretty cool wisdom found in in Scripture. Here's another principle of Judeo-Christian principles. Co-dominance. Co-dominance is the negation of status in interpersonal relationships. I'm not dominating you. You're not dominating me. We can both be strong and friendly at the same time. Where co-dominance is absent, where people interact on the basis of who is higher or lower, anger festers, compassion fails, grudges are never released, and rivers of energy are wasted in posturing and scheming. Where co-dominance is present, we can spend our time and energy creating actual progress. More than that, co-dominance sets us free to love one another. And from love your neighbor as yourself to God is no respecter of persons, that theme runs throughout Judaism and Christianity. Which brings us to this principle, love for the other. The portrayal of the outsider, the other, as an entity to be despised, has spawned millennia of hate and hundreds of millions of murders. The Judeo-Christian principles, however, directly oppose it. Here's a very early passage. The Lord your God executes justice for the fatherless and the widow, and loves the sojourner, giving him food and clothing. Love the sojourner, therefore, for you were sojourners in the land of Egypt. And here's one from Jesus. You've heard it said, you have heard that it was said, rather, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For he makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good, and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. Paul Rosenberg says, Despite the confusion and error that has always circulated, these principles lie at the core of Judaism and the Christianity that came from it. They've been a tremendously important addition to the world. Their loss will be, would be rather incalculable. I would only add to that, we don't need a government program to keep those principles in place. What we need is the ability to put them into practice at the individual level. That's how you know that they work. And it also sets a good example for others who likewise are looking for something solid on which they can stand. I'll have a link to it in the show notes. You really should subscribe to his email. One final thought here. Um, Yesterday I was spending a little bit of time talking about the importance of being able to see the state for what it is versus what it pretends to be. So I'm going to include a link to another amazing essay on the subject from Matthew Caffrey. And it also illustrates how your freedom is contingent on understanding the difference between seeing the state for what it is versus what it pretends to be. Because public policy always rests on violence or the threat thereof. He asks, why is it so difficult to explain the problems government creates? Despite centuries of logic and evidence, well-intentioned people on both the left and the right still insist that government is the solution to all our woes. And he says we need to better communicate the basic facts about how public policies really work. For example, most people don't know the minimum wage hurts those it's supposed to help. Instead, a price floor on labor is seen as a compassionate response to corporate greed. But a lack of economic education isn't the only problem. He says there's an even simpler issue at stake. Most people don't realize what it means for government to solve a problem to begin with. The realities of government intervention are a mystery to most voters. And there's one ugly fact in particular from which they are safely insulated. 
public policy always rests on violence or the threat thereof. Now, the uncomfortable, this uncomfortable truth is almost never mentioned in public calls for more government restrictions on economic and social life. Dragging it into the light is vital in making the case for a free society. The problem is that people's thought process about public policy itself, a euphemism for economic control, is incomplete. Usually when people see a problem, they have a general idea of how the world will look when it's been solved. Yet they can't often articulate how to get there from, or get here, from here to there, rather. Enter the there should be a law mentality. If there's a problem, government should solve it, and that's that. But how will it be solved? Naturally, there are always policy proposals available. What's missing is a discussion of the laws, of what the laws will mean in practice. Not only are their economic effects misunderstood, the means used to achieve them are misunderstood too. See, political means always involve violence or the threat of violence. And in some ways, this isn't controversial. After all, the modern state is typically defined as a monopoly of violence. But in the policy arena, the intrinsic violence of government is shrouded in the rhetoric of compassion and social justice. As a result, policies like minimum wages, licensing laws, tariffs, and closed borders are just abstractions to most people. They have no human meaning. Making them real can help us all see the state for what it is. So, for example, consider how attitudes might change if the voting public understood that minimum wage laws are threats of violence against relatively poor and uneducated workers trying to make a living. Or that licensing and zoning laws are police threats against aspiring entrepreneurs in poverty-stricken cities. Or that tariffs mean that regulators stand ready with guns, if necessary, to defend the privileges of domestic labor unions from the peaceful trade of developing world entrepreneurs. Or that closed borders mean expanding police power so government agents can break down doors in the dead of night to take parents away from their children. See, in each case, the law is a threat of violent enforcement against nonviolent actions. Obey or go to jail. Resist and face the physical force of the, st- of the state. And there are as many potential items on, their, on this list as there are government interventions. Even without considering their disastrous economic effects, each of them rests on its own form of coercion. And tragically, he says, the violence of these policies is unseen. Making it visible can undermine public policy and make a world of difference for some of the least well-off members of society. I'll have a link to this article by Matthew McCaffrey in the show notes, which you'll find at thebrianheidshow.com. Check it out. Tell a friend. Subscribe to the podcast. If this tickles you just right, consider becoming a monthly sponsor or a monthly donor. The links are there in the show notes to help you do just that. And thank you in advance. This is The Brian Hyde Show.